some say that in the same way all rivers lead to the same ocean, all religions lead to the same God. It's said that there's 4,000 religions in the world. Great to have you here. Thanks for joining us today at Church Unlimited. I want to say a quick hello to all of our campuses. Thanks for being a part of our services today. Let's also give it up for our God Behind Bars guys real quick. We love you. Thanks for being a part of our services today. Glad you guys are here. How about them Texans? Somebody give me some love. Come on now. About time. And of course, all we have to do is face the Patriots next week at home. You know, it should be an easy game. It should be quick. It should be, should be simple, simple. You know, I'm a man of faith, but this is testing my faith. I'm not going to lie, but I have major faith. I mean, Elijah faced the prophets of doom. We can do it too, so it's possible. So, hey, thanks for being here. I'm really excited starting a brand new series today. This is a, a, a topic that is a big one to tackle. I'm not going to lie. I've been studying my brains out for this because it is like really taking me in. In fact, just the other night, I stayed up till 5 a.m. studying. I just studied all, I pulled an all-nighter. I haven't done that since college, since seminary days. And uh, just, just trying to make sure that I understand all of these different religions to understand, to be able to explain to you the difference between Christianity and other faith. And so I'm very excited about this series, though, because I think it's going to be very informative. I think it's going to teach you a lot. I do want to apologize if this is your first time. I'm going to sound like a professor today a little bit. So I do apologize for that because there's a lot of content to cover. But I really want you to feel strong in your faith. I really believe it's important that we know why we believe what we believe. So we're going to talk today, we're going to start off by talking about major religions of the world over the next four weeks, and today we're talking about Judaism and Jesus. And so if you got your notes, pull those out if you would, and I feel like we should start with a, with a you know, like two Jews walked in a bar joke or something, but no, I'm not going to do that. So one of my closest friends, by the way, is Jewish, and so it was really fun to go over the notes with him, and I was like, all right, I want to go over all this with you. And I said, have I said anything that offends you? And he said, Bill, you can't offend me. It's the first thing he told me, because you're not going to offend me, and he happens to be a believer and so, uh, as well, but he is uh, from a Jewish background, his family. He's, he grew up in a very strong Jewish culture in a Jewish home, and uh, he has an incredible spiritual heritage, great foundation, he's just a great guy. And so it was really fun to bounce it off of him, too. But I, I want to show you some things in Scripture that you may not realize, that our faith, by the way, the Christian faith comes out of the Jewish faith. I don't know if you knew that or not, but our faith actually began with Abraham. It really did. And so it started with Abraham in 1800 BC, not, not AD, but BC. Not, don't think 1800s. No, no, no. Go keep going. And further, further, further back, 1800 BC. And so let's talk about this. Pull out your notes if you would. I got a lot of things to cover today, but again, uh, I'm glad you guys are here. Let's start off with our mission statement. What's our job? Our job is to do what? To take as many people to heaven as we can before we die, period. And if you're going to do that, you're going to have to get comfortable talking to people of different religions, if you're going to really reach more people for Christ, then you have to be willing to talk to people who don't believe like you do. It's funny how we have a real problem with that. Like if someone says, well, I'm, a, I, I'm Hindu, uh, I, I'm Buddhist, uh, I, I'm Islamic, or I, I'm a Muslim, we, we immediately kind of like, oh, okay, well, I don't know how to talk about that. So we just kind of shut up and just kind of walk away. But the truth is, we don't need to be afraid of that. We should say, oh, that's interesting. Tell me why you believe that. 
and then go into a conversation. And so I'm hoping by the end of this series, you'll be able to have a conversation with someone who says, I'm Mormon, I'm a Scientologist, you know, I'm a Jehovah Witness. And go, oh, okay, yeah, tell me why you believe that. Well, here, here's why I believe what I believe. So you can have an actual conversation with them and, and feel like you're not lost in the weeds or confused or feel like someone's going to talk you into a corner. And so we want you to feel confident in your faith. So let's just take a couple look, a look at a couple things right now. First of all, let's just, let me give you sort of a primer, if you will, on the Judaic faith. Uh, and so here we go, real quick. I'm just going to give you some things to write down. So you get, get a pen out and get ready to write. You guys ready? Are you guys ready? All right, here we go. Number one, the history of the Jewish people is contained in the Old Testament. The only scriptures recognized by the Jewish people of particular importance is the Torah, also known as the law. It's also the first five books of the Old Testament, also called the Pentateuch. Now, the Torah means law. That means those are the laws that you pull out of the five books. But the Pentateuch is the five books. And what are those books? They are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Notice that those are all five books also in our Bible. And so understand that we, we actually, and this is, let me just give you one distinction right now about Jewish, the Jewish religion and Christianity, and that is that we both believe in the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament, we both believe. So everything that they believe about the Old Testament, we believe. So that's a very simple distinction, uh, a very simple similarity. The distinction becomes when we talk about the New Testament. And that's what they say, we don't believe that's Holy Scripture. We believe uh, that's what Jewish, a Jewish person would say. They believe that the Old Testament is the, the, uh, the Word of God, and the New Testament is not the Word of God. We differ in that. We believe that the New Testament is also the Word of God. Now, here's another thing about Jewish people. Number two, Jewish people are more about their deeds than creeds. And by the way, this is a wonderful thing. It doesn't mean that they don't have beliefs. It just means that, frankly, they are about living out their beliefs. This is also one of the reasons why Jewish people, frankly, make incredible citizens. Frankly, you want your neighbors to be Jewish. I mean, it means they take care of their place. They, they're upstanding citizens. They, they don't lie. They're honest. They, they're respectful. They're very family-driven. They're just, frankly, they build great societies. They really do. There's a reason why you go to Israel and it looks a whole lot better than every other nation around them. It's because they build great democracies. And this is one thing that makes them very distinctive, and this is also why the rest of the Middle East hates them so much. I don't know if you knew that, but if you go to Israel, it is way nicer than all the other areas around them, with maybe the exception of Saudi Arabia, because they got a lot of money, but you typically would want to live, especially if you're a woman, you'd want to live in Israel because you have a whole lot more freedom than you would in a place like Saudi Arabia. We can talk more about that uh, next week a little bit as we unpack Islam, by the way. We're going to talk about that some next week. But look at Micah 6, verse 8. It says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And so frankly, the average Jewish person is a very giving person, very caring person, very compassionate. They're just good people. Anyone know a Jewish person? They're just good people. They really are. I mean, they're good family people. My friend I'm talking about, I look up to him. I really do. I think he's one of the best fathers and best husbands I've ever known. He really just is. He's just a good man. And, uh, and his kids respect him. I mean, they have a phenomenal family. His parents are now passed away, but they were amazing people. And so bottom line is, is that the Jewish people that I know are doing very well in life. And I'm not just talking about financially. I mean, I know there's the stereotypes, but there's a reason for that too, because God said he would bless his people. And he has certainly done that in spades, which is a great thing. Now, they also believe, this is not your notes, but let me just tell you, if, if you wonder about what, what about salvation for them, they believe that if you're just committed to the one true God, they believe the one true God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we happen to believe in that God too, same God, okay? But they do not, here's a distinction, they do not believe in the Trinity, 
See, we, they believe there's one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We believe that that one God is one God, but it's also the Father, who's called the Father, by the way, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. But we also believe in the Son and the Holy Spirit, that they're one triune God. It's called the Trinity, and we believe they're all one. This is also a distinction between Islam and Christianity. We'll talk more about that next week as well, that Islamic people have a real problem with the Trinity. They think that's a problem. They, they disagree with that. So, uh, we have a uniqueness about our faith as Christians and believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But I would argue, by the way, for those, maybe if you're Jewish here today, or maybe you're tuning in, you're listening, you're thinking, yeah, that, I, I don't see that anywhere in the Old Testament. I would argue that. Look at Genesis 1.26 on your own time. Genesis 1.26 says, let us make man in our image. Does it say my image? Why did it say our if it was just God? If it was just one person in God, why would it use the word Our. And so now Jewish theologians would argue and say, well, that's because he was talking in a reference of being in the king, in, in his heavenly court. And so he was referring to him and a bunch of angels. But I would disagree because angels don't create. Only God creates. So our would refer to a three-part person, a more than one entity in one being, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You guys staying up with me? You, get, you got it? All right, make sure we're staying in your track with me. Number three, many Jews find Jesus to be a great prophet. And like his teachings, but this is as far as they will go. In other words, they do not believe that God's uh, son is Jesus. They don't, they don't believe that. And so they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, here's the interesting thing. They do believe there is a Messiah. They just don't believe he's come yet. So I don't know if you knew that, but they actually do believe that there is a Messiah. They just don't believe he's come yet. Now, here's an unspoken objection, number four. An unspoken, and this is probably one of the most controversial things I'll say all day, especially if you're Jewish, because this is going to push back against you a little bit, and I don't mean to offend you, but I've just seen this to be the truth with my Jewish friends. And so, but listen very carefully to this, and this is something that, that has been written, upon, uh, written about uh, by many people. An unspoken objection to accepting Jesus is that it is not a Jewish thing to do. It's not that people don't understand the proofs of Jesus, the evidence of who Jesus is, but even when someone does accept the evidence, and that takes a while to do that, especially if you grew up in a Jewish home, to accept that. But if you do, then you have to accept the fact that, wait a minute, what does this mean for my faith? This means that I'm going to do something that's very much not who I am. Because being Jewish is a part of your identity, and so, so it's not a Jewish thing to do. And by accepting Jesus, you, you could be seen as rejecting your family, your upbringing, your history, or your heritage. I don't believe that's the case, but your family may feel that way. And so one of the big issues that Jewish people have in, in accepting Christ is they don't want to send a message. And this is a, this is a great thing. This is, I, I want to say, your intentions are very good in saying, I don't want to hurt my mother, my father, my grandfather, my grandmother. I, don't, I, don't want to, I, I, I love my heritage. And I would actually argue that if you accepted Jesus, you're accepting your heritage even more. Because here's the thing I want you to know today. My Lord and Savior is a Jew. My Lord and Savior is from Israel. My Lord and Savior is as Jewish as it gets. He is the high priest. We believe in that. In fact, if anything, the Bible clearly teaches, the Old Testament and New Testament clearly teaches, teaches us, and the Old, did you catch that? The Old teaches us too, that anyone who commits their life to God is grafted in. We are brought into the family. Look at what Paul says. Paul was a Jew of Jews. He says that in Romans 11, and he said that we get to be grafted in. We get to be adopted into the family. And this is a very personal thing to me because we've adopted a little girl in our family. And I will tell you, she is as much a Cornelius as anyone in my family. In the same way that when I accepted Jesus, I got adopted into your family. Does that make sense? 
And so it's a beautiful thing. And so Jesus opens it up for anyone who wants to be a part of the family uh, of God. And so it is true that God chose the Jewish people to say, I've chosen you and I want to do my great work through you. But he still, he still expects them to receive him by faith. They still have to do that. This is why there's such thing as a thing as a moment where they confirm their own faith personally. And so we accept our faith and we accept that through the Messiah, Jesus, and I believe, and I would argue in Scripture, that Moses and Elijah and others also accepted Jesus by faith. You say, hold on, Pastor. Now, i got a problem with that. You show me where Moses and, Moses and Elijah you know, are hanging out with Jesus. I will. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus, with, if you want to look this up, just write this on your notes somewhere. I'm just, I know I'm throwing a lot at you fast. But there's this thing called the transfiguration where Jesus goes up on the hill. He takes, he takes his three top uh, disciples with him. He takes Peter, James, and John with him, and he goes up on the hill. And guess what? His face literally transfigures, and guess who shows up? Moses and Elijah. Now, before this, Jesus is talking about what's called the kingdom of God a lot. And so in this picture, Peter, a good Jew boy, is seeing, whoa, this is crazy. All that I grew up with, I'm now seeing Jesus with Moses, the patriarch, and Elijah, the prophet, and Jesus all together. Now think about this. This is the perfect picture of the kingdom, okay? Because you've got Jesus, right? He's the one who makes the kingdom happen. And you've got Moses, who had faith in God and had died. You've got Elijah, who had faith in God but never died. He was just taken up to heaven. And you've got Peter, John, and James, who had faith in Jesus, and they were all there. That's the whole kingdom. It's people who have died with faith in the Lord people who were taken up with faith in the Lord, and people who hadn't even died yet, and Jesus is going to come back and get us. Does that make sense? So let me ask you now a question, whether you're Jewish or not. Have you accepted Jesus? That's how you're in the kingdom. If you haven't accepted Jesus, you're not going to be in the kingdom. The Bible's very clear about this. And so whether you read the Old Testament or the New Testament, there is a coming Messiah. We just happen to believe that Jesus is that Messiah. And so, and by the way, Jeshua also known as Joshua, is a picture of Christ. Moses was a picture of Christ. There, you, you begin to study, if you begin to look at, look at through the lens of Jesus, you begin to see all these stories, there's people being saved. And so Moses is a picture of Christ, and, and jo- Joshua literally means Jeshua, which is the same name. Joshua and Jesus are from the same root. Joshua is also Jeshua. And so they actually both mean the same thing, the Lord saves. And did you know when we use the phrase Jesus Christ, when we say, I accepted Jesus Christ, you know what the word Christ means? Christ means Messiah. So we're saying, I accept Jesus as my Messiah. That's what we're saying when we say, I accept Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah. Is this making sense to you guys? Just trying to help you put all this together. Isn't it cool how God brings all this together? Can we just give God a hand for his goodness and his great graciousness all through the Old and the New Testament? I love this. And so now I want to give you some, some prophecy and show you how it was fulfilled, some Old Testament prophecy that speaks about a, a coming Messiah and how we believe Jesus fulfills all that prophecy. And I know if you are from a Jewish descent uh, or Jewish faith, this may really challenge you, but please open your mind to just seeing what the Scripture actually says about this. Even if you don't see it as Scripture, just, just hear us out. Check it out. Here's the first one, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God's talking through a guy named Abraham who's considered the founder of the Jewish faith. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Then look, at Gen- uh, then look at Matthew chapter 1. By the way, the next verse on your outline, it says Genesis 1-1. That's not right. It's Matthew 1-1. So please correct that. Would you do that real quick on your notes? Matthew 1-1. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of who? Abraham. 
So God kept his promise that he had made to Abraham that through you, and by the way, this, was, this promise was given to Abraham 1,800 years in advance of Jesus. Now just, just imagine how far advanced that is. So if, we, if we're creating a timeline, and, and this is just this, this, this time here, so 1,800 years, God tells Abraham, hey, I'm going to bless you through your lineage forever, which means that someone is going to be holy and live forever. Okay, I don't know what that means, Lord, but okay, thanks, right? Then fast forward about 600 years, and all of a sudden you got David. God says, hey, David, I'm going to bless you through your lineage as well, because you're through the lineage of, of Abraham too, and one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. That speak, forever is, is speaking of an eternal, an eternal throne. This is not just an earthly throne that's being established, right? Then you fast forward all the way up to the very first century, and all of a sudden, you got Jesus who shows up. So you got this massive timeline. So people say, well, Jesus made the whole thing up. How could he make up where he was born into? How, how do you do that? How, did you make up who your parents were? That was chosen for you. So if this is a conspiracy, this conspiracy goes over thousands of years, how, how can you design that yourself? Unless you're just a part of something greater that's happening that God's put in place. So that's what God has done through the Scripture. So let's jump back in and, and, and take a look at this. So the first thing you need to know, number one, is the Messiah was to be from Abraham's descendants. The Messiah was to be from Abraham's descendants. Number two, David, an Old Testament patriarch, prophesied of the Messiah's resurrection as well as being from his lineage. Look at the Scripture. Now listen very carefully to this. Psalm 1610 says, "'Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one decay.'" See decay. So it clearly says there in the Scripture that, that, that you will not abandon your one, you will not abandon me, my lineage, to the dead. So there will be death, but not decay. That sounds like a resurrection to me. So if I die, but I don't decay, then I must come back to what? To life. So that sounds like a resurrection to me. Now look at, look at Psalms 132. The Lord swore an oath to David, one of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and statutes, I teach them, then their sons will sit on the throne forever and ever. Wow, for eternity. And then look at Isaiah 11, verse 1. This is 700 years before Jesus shows up. From the stump of Jesse is, is where the, the Savior will come. Look at Matthew 22, verse 32. Look what Jesus had to say. Now, this is his own words. He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Astonished also means shocked. This is Jewish culture. Jesus says, hey, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, for Jewish people who say, well, you know, Jesus, he was a good teacher. Okay, if you say you're God, you're no longer a good teacher. You either are God or you're crazy, right? Like if you come to church here because you like the teaching, thanks for coming. I hope you do like the teaching. But whether you do or not is beside the point. But the moment I say on stage, oh, by the way, everyone, I'm God, that's when the whole place clears out. That's when you're like, okay, he's not a good teacher. Now he's crazy, right? That's like David Koresh. That's nuts. Who does this guy think he is, Right? So to say Jesus was a good teacher means you haven't heard what he's taught. He said openly, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the fulfillment of that. Like, what? He read from the scrolls of Isaiah that spoke of a Messiah and said, I am him. I'm the one who came to set the captives free. Like, what? Who would say it? Jesus, what are, you, what are you saying? And remember they got mad at him? Like, isn't this... Mary and Joseph's boy, and he says he's the Savior? I mean, they, they were furious. They wanted to kill him. 
Which, by the way, that may seem unreasonable to you, but that was the reasonable thing to do according to Scripture. If someone spoke blasphemy, you killed them. That's what the law taught. They were just being good Jewish people, saying, time to kill him. He says he's the Savior. He's not. And then he fulfilled it, which was the crazy part. So, look at number three. Isaiah was also an Old Testament Jewish prophet, describes a future Messiah. Look at Isaiah 53. See if, you're not, see if this does not sound like Jesus to you. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Also by his stripes. This is another translation of the same verse. We use this, of course, at Christmas time, this verse. So Isaiah is speaking of a prophet, of a Messiah who will give his life for all mankind. Now, I wanted to stop here real quick and interrupt this message and encourage you to be here next week as we continue talking about this. Next week, we're going to talk about Islam. I want to encourage you to be here, and I want to tell you this. Next week's message may be the most provocative, compelling message I've ever preached from this stage. There are some things I'm going to say that I'm almost scared to say from stage, realizing the implications in our world today. But I want to challenge you to be here and be a part of this. In fact, I want to encourage you to bring a friend who may be a Muslim. I'm fine with that. I'm not going to offend him. That's not going to be my goal. I'm not going to be offensive in any way. We're simply going to spell out the facts so they can come to their own conclusions. So I want to encourage you to be here. But if, you're, if you left, if you're like me and you're a bit confused, like why, did, why are they so angry? What, what are they mad at? What have we done that, that, that causes their anger? Is jihad real? What's the deal with that? What does all that mean? Be sure to join us next week as we talk about that, Islam and Jesus. And believe it or not, Islam has its foundations in the Old Testament too. I don't know if you knew that, but it's actually founded in the Old Testament. So, and they're very proud of that, by the way, because they believe also in the first five books of the Old Testament. It's very interesting. So be sure to join us for that next week. I want to encourage you to be here. And we're going to also explain why there's so much anger and what's the difference between Muslims in the East versus Muslims in the West and why they think so differently and what's the deal with all that. So be sure to be here, and I want to encourage you. I'm not picking a fight with anybody. That's not what we're going to be about. Have, we, have you ever seen me do that? That's not who we are. So I want you to be able to trust your church. Be sure to be here. I promise you it will be very informative. So join us next week for Islam and Jesus. Don't miss that. So let me show you something else. So Isaiah spoke of this. So we've got Moses, uh, we've got Abraham, we've got David, we've got Isaiah. Now look here. I want to also talk about not, not only did Jesus come from the lineage of all these guys, but also let's look at the location that was prophesied 700 years before Jesus was born. Micah 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. This is very specific. Basically, the Messiah has to come from Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem, the entire town, by the way, happened to be relatives of David. So that's why it's also called the city of David. But this is interesting. Bethlehem, you know how big Bethlehem is? Even now, it's only a couple thousand people. You know how big it was then? Six, seven hundred people. It was, a, it was a blinking light in a Dairy Queen. That was Bethlehem. Very, very small town. Maybe a Dairy Queen. There's definitely not a Walmart. Way too big for that. Way too small for that, right? And so it was a very, very small town. Hosea 11 says this, 700 years ago, uh, before Jesus was born also. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So how can Jesus, the Messiah, if he really is the Messiah, he's got to be born from Bethlehem, but also from Egypt? How, how does that work? Well, my son, Mason, he's going to Liberty University now, but my son, if, they, if his friends up at Liberty were to ask him where he's from, he would say, I'm from Corpus Christi. 
But if they said, where are you born? He said, oh, I was born in Dallas, but I'm from Corpus Christi because about six weeks into, after he was born, we moved to Corpus Christi. So in his world, he was born in Dallas from Corpus Christi. Jesus was born in Bethlehem from Egypt. It's, it's clear in Scripture right here. In fact, let me, let me show you the verse. It says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to, to Joseph in a dream. Again, this is 700 years later. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary and his mother, his mother and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Number four. The location of Jesus' birth was Bethlehem, and he traveled to Egypt. Now, I'm going to tell you why I want to bring all this up. I want to read a quote to you from Fritz Reidenauer from a book called So What's the Difference? It takes a look at 20 different worldviews, 20 different religions. Listen to what he says. The Old Testament contains over 300 references to the Messiah that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The Old Testament has over 300 references or prophecies of the coming Messiah that are fulfilled in Jesus. Computations using the science of probability on just eight of these prophecies show the chance that someone could have fulfilled all eight prophecies is 10 to the 17th power or one in one quadrillion. Let me help you with the math. If I had a silver dollar and I stacked that silver dollar with other silver dollars up two feet tall, and then I covered the state of Texas, two feet, completely covered the entire ground of Texas with silver dollars. And we painted one of those silver dollars pink and randomly placed it somewhere in the stack all across Texas. And you were blindfolded and can walk anywhere across Texas and pick one out. You picking up the right one that's, that's colored pink, that's the same chances of Jesus not being the Messiah based upon eight prophecies being fulfilled in his birth alone. Yet there were 300 prophecies about Jesus that all came to fulfillment in one guy. The evidence is there. Jesus is the Messiah. Isn't that good news? Do you feel confident in that? Feel confident in that. So I want to give you now some Jewish evidence of the Messiah, some, some extra biblical evidence. In other words, people say, well, what if I don't believe the New Testament, for those who don't believe it? Well, then let's, let's throw that out, and let's see if there's evidence outside the New Testament about Jesus being the Messiah. Josephus is considered, uh, the guy I'm going to quote next, is considered the greatest historian of ancient Jewish history. That, that, that's very well documented. If you just ask any Jewish theologian who's the greatest historian of Jewish theology, they'll immediately just, they'll all say Josephus. Like, it, it won't even be a question. They're just like, boom, done. Who's the best quarterback? Tom Brady. Who's the best historian? Josephus. It's just, it's just that fast, okay? Don't get upset, Cowboy fans. Sorry, I know it's upset some of you right now. <laughs> Josephus in Antiquities wrote this. He's a Jewish historian working for the Romans in the first century. He said, at this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Wow. This guy works for the Romans, so he's, he gets his paycheck from Rome. Remember, the Romans are the ones who killed Jesus on the cross. So he works for the Romans, and he is a good Jewish guy, Jewish family. So 
He wants to please the Romans because they pay him, and he also wants to please his family. And also, he also is a very arrogant guy. I don't know if you knew this, but in all of his writings, he talked about how he was the greatest historian. He would say that openly. You know, I'm the greatest historian, so not only write this book. And so he would let people know that. So it was very important to him to be the best. And so because of all that, why would he lie? He couldn't lie if he wanted to have any kind of credibility as a historian. And he said, perhaps Jesus was the Messiah. Some Jewish theologians as of late have argued that maybe this was not really what he wrote. But everyone who argued it has argued it hundreds of years after it was written. Where are all the documents of those questioning him when he wrote this? We have none of those. There aren't any. What I'm trying to explain to you is like, look, okay, look, I'm a Texans fan. You guys know that. So I'm not a Cowboys fan, even though I'm I'm cheering for them right now because they're really doing good. and I like that. I think it's great. But I will tell you this. I may not be a Cowboy fan, but I'm not going to pretend they don't exist. That would be a little extreme, wouldn't it? If you said, so you like the Cowboys? What if I said, the Cowboys? What are you talking about? There's no Cowboys. There's no team. What are you talking about? They don't exist. You know, up in Dallas, they have a big stadium. No, there's, that's all. No, that's made up. Oh, that's all. That's just CGI. That's all computer graphics. There's actually no stadium there. There's really no Romo. There's really no Dak. You'd be like, Bill, have you lost your mind? They do exist. Like, I know you may not like them, but they do exist. So I'm not asking whether you receive Jesus as a Messiah. I'm just trying to tell you there's proof that he existed. There's evidence all over the place that he's real. I didn't say you have to accept him, but to say he's not who he said he was, that he didn't die, that he didn't raise again, you're denying facts all over the place to say he didn't exist. So the real issue is that if he's real, will you receive him? If he really did what he said he did, will you receive him? Now, Geisler and Brooks in their book, When Skeptics Ask, said this, The fact that neither he, Josephus, nor any other contemporary of the apostles make any attempt to refute the resurrection is significant. I've had people tell me, well, you know, I don't believe Jesus rose again. I had this professor who told me that, and I always smile and say, where's your professor there? Oh, they weren't there? Oh, what a shock. So they weren't there, so they're telling you this from their opinion, from their classroom, not even from the Middle East, not even from 2,000 years ago when all these events happened, but no one from that time frame from there questioned it. So everyone who lived there, no one questioned it. The only people who questioned it are people who questioned it now because it's convenient to question it now because if it was true, then you've got to change your life. Does that make sense? So the bottom line is that they don't question it back in the day. Louis Gottschalk in his book, Understanding History, this is a guy who writes about how we get history and why we get history. He says this, Conformity or agreement with other known historical or scientific facts is often the decisive test of evidence whether of one or more witnesses. Bottom line is that the evidence is there, and it's unquestionable when you look at all the... I mean, guys, it's prolific. There's so much evidence of this. We're going to unpack some of that evidence next week as well. Can I give you one more piece of evidence if I can? Number five was this. There is authentic Jewish evidence outside the Bible of Jesus being the Messiah. You say, well, there's only a couple people that that wrote about Jesus that, that weren't in the, in, the, in the Bible, and so I can't believe that. But let me give you a list, by the way, real quick. I'm just going to run this through real quick. Here's a list of some people that, that uh, were outside of the Bible, for those of you who don't believe the Bible. Irenaeus, Bishop of, uh, of Smyrna, Thallus, Tacitus, Meribar, Serapion, uh, Flagian, Pliny the Younger, Suetonius, Lucia of Samosota, and Celsus. Those are just a few of the people that I just want to list off that were not people that were written about in the Bible that talked about Jesus all the time. So clearly... There's all this other evidence that's real. You ever notice that when the New York Times says something wrong, the New York Post always talks about it? 
If Fox News gets a fact wrong, do you think MSNBC is going to cover it? You th- if CNN gets something wrong, is Fox going to cover it? They love that. That's their favorite thing to do is to say, on ABC News, CBS got it wrong. We got it right. We're the ones you should watch. Right? So if Josephus got it wrong, where are all the other historians saying, oh, no, I'm right, you're wrong? Where, where are all those articles? They don't exist. They're not there. Because it was taken for granted. It was such an obvious thing. Everyone saw him die. And everyone's, there were over 500 witnesses who saw Jesus rise again. After, after he had died, walking around talking to people, 500 witnesses. We put people away in jail for life with one witness. There were 500 witnesses who saw him after he had died, walking around, talking, encouraging people. This is crazy. The evidence is there. One, one last piece of evidence I want to give you, and we'll wrap it up. Mark chapter 15 says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And there at, in, at three in the afternoon, uh, it says, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is when he's on the cross. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed, breathed his last. Now, this is just a little bit of physical evidence I want to give you real quick. So if I'm in court and I'm an eyewitness to, to a murder and I say, yeah, that night it was raining really hard. But just five minutes before I said that, I was out of the courtroom and someone else was on the stand, and they had said, yeah, that night it was a really clear night. It was a beautiful night. It was dry. You would say, hold on a second, we have a problem. Because the, the last witness said it was dry, and this guy just got up and said it was raining. Okay, someone's not right, right? So even weather matters to your witness, right? Now notice something about the weather pattern this particular day. On this particular day, from noon to three, it went dark. Does that sound like a normal day to you? Do you ever see that happen? You just randomly woke up today, <laughs> look at that, it went dark, noon to three. It's an extremely rare thing, right? I mean, it, it does happen. It's extremely rare. When it happens, it's like a big deal, right? Something's going on with the, with the moon, typically, right? Some kind of blockage just lined up, just right. It's kind of a neat thing, and everyone gets out their telescopes, and it's like a big thing, right? You know, classrooms come out, they want to see this, because it's so rare. So this particular day, noon to three, it goes dark. Now, let me show you a fragment that was found years later. Will Durant wrote a book called Caesar and Christ. Will Durant was one of the most uh, esteemed uh, historians of our day. He said, about the middle of the first century, a pagan, that means a non-believer, named Thallus, in a fragment preserved by a guy named Julian Africanus, argued that the abnormal darkness alleged to have accompanied the death of Christ was a purely natural phenomenon in coincidence. The argument took the existence of Christ for granted. The denial of that existence seems never to have occurred, even to the bitterest Gentile or Jewish opponents of nascent, newly birthed Christianity. So this guy writes a letter to a friend that says, you know, the reason I think it went dark when Christ died was because of this. So he's arguing why it went dark, not whether it went dark. He's also, he's also not arguing whether Christ was on the cross. That's just assumed. So again, you have physical evidence of someone writing about an event that everyone knew about, that Jesus had died and he rose again. Guys, I could go on and on with evidence. I don't even have time to go on, on any further. But if you don't believe this, please question me. I'm begging you to go do the research and prove me wrong. Because if you will do it, you will become stronger in your faith than ever. Because the evidence is everywhere. I transferred my freshman year from a Christian school to a non-Christian school. I ended up going to a state school and I had professor after professor questioning my faith over and over again. 
I had a lot of people question my faith, and I had to learn why I believe what I believe. And it became something that, that I became known for in my, in my college, that I would, I would literally debate people about their faith. And so I had to learn, why do I believe what I believe? And, and honestly, the reason I became a Christian was because my parents were Christian, and I personally experienced Jesus when I was in, in junior high and high school. But when I got to college, I realized that wasn't good enough. There wasn't enough reason. In other words, my faith was real, but when people ask me why I believe what I believe, it wasn't okay just to say, because my parents taught me. The truth is that's great if, if our parents teach us about Jesus, but we should have more reasons than that as to why we believe what we believe. So today I've given you grounded reasons that it is a historical fact that an event happened that changed everything. If you take out the event of the cross and Jesus rising again, we have no faith. That is the bedrock of everything we believe in. But because we do have the evidence, you can stand toe-to-toe with anyone from any religion and say, this is why I believe in Jesus, because he claimed to be God, he died, and he rose again. And that's the difference between our faith and all other faiths. Would you bow your heads with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for, forgive me if it seems like I'm a little professorial today. I know it's a lot of information to take in, but with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I want you to have the confidence to know why you believe what you believe, to know that we have good reason to stand strong in our faith. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Maybe you're not from a Jewish background, or maybe you are. Maybe you're from a different faith altogether, but you didn't know there was evidence Maybe you didn't realize that our founder of our faith in Christianity didn't just say, here's a good way to live, here's some practical principles to live by. He didn't just give us a rule book, a guidebook. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He said he was going to die. He said he was going to raise again. Then he did it. No one else has done that. That's the difference. That's why we believe Jesus is beyond man. Because to be beyond man means you have to conquer death. No one's done that. Only one. Only one. Jesus rose again. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can receive him right now by praying this very simple prayer. Would you pray this prayer with me? You can just say this out loud. Together, we're going to pray it together across all of our campuses. Just say this prayer with me. You can say, Dear Jesus, I believe you died for me. And I believe you rose again. I've heard the evidence. And now by faith, I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. In your name we pray. Amen. Isn't God good? His word is so true.